For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. Is there currently a crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, and will sending National Guard troops bring relief? We'll remember radio legend Carl Castle with an interview recorded back in 2009. And a roundtable discussion about the realities of living with autism. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Earlier this week, while visiting the U.S. border in Yuma, Secretary of Homeland Security Kirsten Nielsen repeated her boss's claim that there is currently a crisis at the border, the reason why President Trump called for activation of the National Guard in four border states. AZPM border and immigration reporter Nancy Montoya looked into the claims and found that there is a crisis at the border, but it's not the one the president is talking about. It all started with a BuzzFeed report on March 29th. The headline read, A huge caravan of Central Americans is heading for the U.S., and no one in Mexico dares to stop them. This group of migrants, 1,200, marching to America in the BuzzFeed Two days later, on April 1st, that same story was picked up by Fox and Friends. Later that day, another Fox program pushed the story yet again. Well, good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. A caravan of more than a thousand Central Americans, men, women... And on that same day, April 1st, President Donald Trump tweeted, Caravans coming, Republicans must go to nuclear option to pass tough laws now. In another tweet, the president said, quote, These big flows of people are all trying to take advantage of DACA. They want in on the act. With one tweet, the president had tied DACA, the immigration plan for those brought to the U.S. as children, to this so-called caravan marching to our border. Now, a team of NPR and PBS immigration reporters fact-checked several other presidential tweets on Easter Monday about the massive caravans. Claim one caravans of migrants are crossing the border. Not so, say the fact-checkers. A check with Border Patrol along the southern states reports no caravans or masses of people storming the border. There has been a surge from last year to this year of border apprehensions, but it is still at a 42-year record low. Claim two, Mexico is doing very little to stop these caravans. The NPR reporting team found that organizers of the so-called caravans are from the group Pueblo Sin Fronteras, or City Without Borders. This is actually the seventh year for such a caravan. The caravan is made up of people on foot. It has become an annual event to highlight the plight of migrants. Almost all of those walking are from Honduras, and almost all are seeking asylum in Mexico, not the U.S. And claim three about the DACA connection. The president tweeted, quote, These big flows of people are all trying to take advantage of DACA. They want in on the act. Here's PBS NewsHour's Lisa Desjardins. There is a factual problem there. Since President Obama created the DACA program, it has been limited to only those who were brought into the United States illegally by the year 2007. So bottom line, 
any child brought into the U.S. illegally now or in the past few years cannot qualify for DACA. Shortly after having seen the Fox News coverage on the so-called caravans and the tweeting storm on April 1st, the president moved from tweets to policy. And here's where it all begins to impact Arizona. I've been speaking with General Mattis. We're going to be doing things military. Until we can have a wall and proper security, we're going to be guarding our border with the military. And so with that, Donald Trump ordered the governors of four border states to activate their National Guards. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey immediately complied. Within 48 hours of that tweet, Ducey was huddled with staff to make the president's request a reality. He held a news conference first in Phoenix and Yuma with National Guard troops behind him. And in between Phoenix and Yuma, he did another news conference in Nogales. I receive regular updates on border activity, but with the recent surge that we've seen, I wanted to come down to the front line in Nogales and see it for myself. Now remember, Nogales is in Santa Cruz County, and the sheriff of that county, Tony Estrada, says there is no crisis, no caravan of migrants storming the border. Estrada has worked law enforcement at the border in Nogales for 50 years, first with the Nogales Police Department and now as the sheriff of Santa Cruz County. We don't have a crisis as far as uh, I can tell. Uh, I can't speak for the rest of the counties uh, from San Diego to Brownsville, but we're not seeing a crisis here in Santa Cruz County. So why the emergency sirens from Donald Trump? This is a, like another tantrum from our president trying to force uh, Congress to give him a uh, big, beautiful wall he wants. He has this, this fascination and obsession with that wall that's overwhelming. He is basically being an alarmist and crying wolf. Vicki Galbeca is the director of the Southern Border Communities Coalition. The coalition represents 60 organizations from the four U.S. states that share a border with Mexico. About President Trump's tweeting storm the week after Easter, she says. It really does feel like it's just another way that he is being an alarmist and crying wolf to uh, justify his building his big, beautiful wall, which would be a colossal waste of ta taxpayers' money. Now, what would not be a waste of money, says Sheriff Estrada, is help at the actual ports of entry with customs officials, and not so much with the Border Patrol agents who deal with migrants and drugs once they have physically made it past the border. The real crisis at the border, says Estrada and Galbeca, are drugs and the cartels at the ports. The hard drugs, the meth, the cocaine, heroin, and fentanyl, they're coming through the ports of entry. Uh, they're not coming around the, you know, the rural areas. And you see about 2,000 tractor trailers coming across the Mariposa port of entry every day. And then you've got the, Southern, the Union Pacific Railroad with uh, hundreds, if not, well, hundreds and hundreds of uh, boxcars coming and going. They need more officers at the port of entry. If you're going to stop the flow of hard drugs coming across uh, into the United States, it has to be at the port of entry. Now that, says Estrada, is where the real crisis is, the actual ports of entry. It is true that both President Bush and Obama mobilized the National Guard to the border, but neither was done so quickly and without a clear plan of action. At the Nogales News Conference, we asked Governor Ducey and Border Patrol Tucson Sector Chief Rudy Karish about the mad rush to activate the Guard. 
But Chief, wasn't this triggered by the president's uh, viewing this caravan of people coming through and going to smash into our border? Isn't that what triggered the concern and triggered the National Guard? Nancy, I think that this has been a topic that we've been looking at for some time. We've had numerous caravans that, that have come to our borders uh, in the past. That is where, of course, we have the mission uh, is to intercept that. That is not what we're asking, asking the Guard to do. In the end, say those working the ports of entry, it is not only when and how many National Guard troops are called up, more important is where they will be deployed. And right now, the ports of entry, not rural Arizona, is where the Guard is needed. So far, at the Tucson sector, no National Guard troops have been deployed to those ports of entry. We will be watching. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya. From Arizona Public Media, I'm Carl Castle, and this is Arizona Spotlight. NPR listeners and fans of rigorous scorekeeping were saddened by news on Tuesday of the death of radio legend Carl Castle. He was 84 years old, and he had been living with Alzheimer's disease in Potomac, Maryland. Remembered best for delivering as many as seven NPR news breaks on weekday mornings for more than three decades, Castle was also revered for his dry and enduring sense of humor. It played an important part on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Being on that show was a labor of love for Carl Castle, and after his retirement from news, it became his radio home away from home. In so many ways, Carl was a hero to me, and I know I'm not alone in feeling that way. I was able to talk to him once, back in 2009, and I admit to being more than a little starstruck. Here is some of that conversation. Back in 1977, I was hired full-time after having done some part-time work uh, a couple of years earlier. And I was around uh, when Morning Edition went on the air in 1979, and I began doing early morning newscasts then. I understand that even as you retire from the news business, you're going to stick around with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Oh, I certainly will. I am, I'm not leaving that program. And I will be around also as a kind of roving ambassador for NPR. I'll be out uh, helping stations with fundraisers, uh, with any event they may have, uh, make a speech somewhere. I'll be around. You can't get rid of me. <laughs> well, is part of it perhaps that you enjoy the power of, of being the judge? Well, I like to throw my weight around once in a while, but uh, you know, they're, they're, those people, they're, they're, they're sharp too, and they know that they have to adhere by the rules, and I don't have too much back talk from them. I talked to Paula Poundstone a while back for the show, and uh, she tells the tale of you tying her tie for her. Can you uh, corroborate this? I did. I tied her tie. Uh, Paula always wears a tie. And her favorite tie is one with a picture of the Three Stooges on it. <laughs> She's a funny, funny woman and, and a dear woman, too. I love her very much. One of your hobbies that I found out about from the NPR profile of you, it claimed that you were an accomplished magician. I don't know if it's all that accomplished. There are certain <laughs> illusions which I, I can do pretty well, and it'll fool the bazabras out of you. But I enjoy it, and I'm, I'm always looking for something new to do. 
I do have a Black & Decker saw that I can saw people in half with, and so far I've been very lucky, no, no accidents. I, I like the Chinese linking rings. You know, you have four separate rings in your hand before they're, you're finished. They're all linked together in, one, in, a, in a chain. I love those things, and uh, it's good to, uh, to fool people with magic. They, they love it. Do you typically carry uh, uh, some trick in your pocket? Do you, do you have the uh, makings of a magic trick on you? Uh, not at the moment, no. <laughs> you, you know, you could lie. It's radio. I, I keep some nearby. I, I have a briefcase with a few in there. <laughs> the, the briefcase that's followed you into, you know, the White House and places like that? Uh, no, 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 no. no. no okay. well, what I have would not set off a metal detector, no. To what do you attribute your incredible popularity with National Public Radio's female listeners? <laughs> Charm. <laughs> a word like that, uh, good looks, savoir-faire, whatever that is, and uh, just a good old guy that you want to know, somebody who knows his way around. Mm -hmm. To what do you attribute these qualities in yourself? Uh, was, this, was this learned or bred? I think I learned some of them, probably born with many of them, but I don't use them all the time because I have a wonderful wife, and she wouldn't put up with it. That was Carl Castle in an interview recorded in December of 2009 upon the occasion of his retirement from NPR News. Carl's friends at Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me will be paying tribute on their show this week. You can find it online or tune in Saturday morning at 11 on NPR 89.1. My name is Bree Seward, and my son was diagnosed with autism at three and a half. I now am the Associate Director for the Autism Society. My name is Edgar Castillo, and I have a son who has autism. Caleb is his name, and he is nine years old now. He was about three years old when he was diagnosed. And I was invited here by Bree to talk a little bit about it and uh, talk about the autism walk. My name is Hattie Groskind. I'm a senior graduating uh, next month at the University of Arizona. Uh, my major is Care, Health, and Society. Um, I was diagnosed formally with autism when I was either 11 or 12. It was in middle school. I don't remember what specific age it was, but it was much later than the average diagnosis. But um, I talked too much instead of the stereotypical not enough. And she taught me how to make eye contact. So because of those two main factors, no doctor would diagnose me. And so for the longest time, we couldn't really get any services because, you know, no one had put the label on me. Developmental milestones, chromosome deletions, neurodivergency. These phrases may not mean a lot to some of us, but to others, they're concepts that help to define their world because they or someone they love is living with autism. Next, we'll hear our three guests, Bree, Edgar, and Hattie, have a discussion with each other about the role autism plays in their lives. To help guide them, I gave them questions they had not seen before, written on strips of paper. They took turns reading the questions aloud and responding. This is Bree, and the question is, do you feel that you often have to explain autism to people you meet? I 
think so. And I think my mother does a better job of doing this when we're in public. I kind of keep to myself. This is kind of personal to me, but, you know, if my son is Seb and he's now seven years old, um, when he was three years old, he would throw himself down in the middle of the airport or the mall or, you know, public places. And we didn't have an explanation for it. We thought it was something silly he was doing or he was being funny. But now, you know, when he is successful or he is um, kind of playing around like other kids or doing things that are typical, my mom will always point out, you know, he has autism. He has autism. Or if he or if someone makes a comment in the store like he's he's cute or, or he's really responsible or makes like a, a positive comment about him, she will let that person know that he has autism. And I think it's amazing because it paints the picture of what autism looks like because that person at the cashier, she may think autism looks like Rain Man or something completely different. And I love that everywhere we go, she's constantly communicating to other people of what it looks like. And it looks different in every person and it's beautiful in every person. So um, even though I personally don't want to explain it, I love the fact that she does. And she will every single day find a way to explain autism to the public. This is Edgar. So I step back when I see Caleb interact with other people. I like to give him a chance to just see what he's going to do. And I like to just see other people's faces when he comes up to him and he just randomly tries to give him a hug. And his hugs are like half hugs. Mm -hmm. So he kind of leans into him a little bit and then he kind of leans one mm -hmm. arm and then just touches him and then walks away. <laughs> and then I step in and then I may say something like, he was just trying to hug you. I hope that's okay. Yeah. And I may or may not say, you know, he has autism. Not all the time do I do I use the phrase, not because um, he's going to be labeled, but simply because I think that's his way of introducing himself right now. So, yes, I do feel that I maybe should be a little bit more proactive, but I like to sit back. And then eventually I do, I do have to explain myself. So this is Hattie. I, yes, always have to explain um, autism to people I meet, partially because I'm very open about the fact that I have autism and it's public speaking for me. So it's almost kind of a habit that I have to kind of when I see situations happen or I hear um, someone talking about it in a way that is not factually correct. Um, I, I clarify and say, well, you know, that might not be really what's going on here, but also the fact that I can pass as neurotypical. So I can blend in if I really, really try. And I kind of love shattering people's expectations, kind of like what you mentioned earlier, Brie, uh, that, you know, not all of us are Rain Man. And it's, I always try to say, you know, look, I have it. You never would have guessed. However, you don't know what goes on inside my head. You don't know what sensory problems I'm having at this very second that you have no idea about. So I always explain it um, partially because I think similar to what, you know, Bree's mom was doing, it's you're showing that there's a spectrum. You're showing that every person is different. And for me, I just always talk too much instead of not enough. So it's just kind of part of who I am and part of my personality. And um, I just feel like advocacy is really important and I have – been able to become this verbal, so I might as well use it. What about stigma versus advocacy? I know that a lot of people around me are scared that when I label myself and I'm very out and proud about the fact that I'm autistic, that they are scared that people will stigmatize me or just look at me as that one word. Um, but personally, I think I kind of think the opposite by showing that you're not afraid of who you are and you're not judging yourself for who you are and you're showing the world that you are 
loving this part of yourself. To me, that's part of my own way of fighting my own internal internalized stigma. Um, so I don't know. For, for me, it's a little bit tricky because, of course, I, I don't want to be just viewed as that. But at the same time, just because I have it, it doesn't limit me. And I think that's important for people to see. And I think as a parent, going to a new school and rolling my child into a new school, it presented a different kind of experience because I I know that there's still stigmas. I know that there's still bullying. Yeah. I, and I didn't want that to happen for Seb. So I actually, the only person that knows is his teacher. And because I don't see it as different, you know, if he can... Um, play with the rest of them and and do the same work as them. And I didn't want to put that label on him, but at the it, but it's hard because I work for the Autism Society, so I, I you know I embrace that label. I'm so proud of what we do, um, but at the same time, I knew the effects that it might have on my own child. I think the only people that need to know is a teacher and the school and um, you at home as a parent knowing what the, what you need to do. Because we always have to do diff- more work as a parent of a child with autism. You're always doing double at home. You're always teaching empathy. You're always teaching social skills. You're always teaching, just trying to always like guide them every step of the way where it might just come naturally to typical children. Yes, I think people have that, you know, that stigma against the word autism and it's such a broad spectrum. I think it's very difficult to just meet a stranger and tell them about, you know, your kid's autism. Um, it's a little bit easier with kids. Um, Caleb is in, in a classroom that almost all the kids have autism. There's other kids in the classroom that don't have autism. They have other disabilities. So in that scenario, unlike Bree, it's like everybody accepts it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's the norm. I used to be afraid of the label. Mm-hmm. I'm not afraid of the label myself anymore, but I'm afraid of what could cause him in the yeah, future. Same here. Not yeah, me. Same here. That's like exactly what my parents and like some of my mentors are afraid of. And sometimes I'm just kind of like, you know, it's out there, but if I don't do anything about it, it's still going to be there no matter what I do. So I might as well, like for me, even though I acknowledge that that's a fear of having that stuck on me. It's kind of like it's going to be there no matter what. I might as well kind of try and combat it in a way that's empathetic and kind and and shows by example. What's been weird for me is hearing my parents express these exact concerns that they don't want me to be stuck in a hole um, that other people are putting me in. And it's just really interesting hearing your guys' thoughts on that. And maybe five years we won't be there. Yeah. Let's hope. Let's hope, right? Go look at you. You're doing great. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. This is Bree. How has the network of the Autism Society of Southern Arizona made a difference for you? For me, um, now working for the organization has given me tremendous purpose. You know, I feel like those challenging moments and those deep, dark um, years of despair and, and, and have now served a greater purpose for me to help those families not go through that. Every day I, I talk to them and they're at the place that I was, I feel like I can make a difference in 
one life a day. If I can save them the time and stress, you know, as parents working full time, um, there's a lot of single parents. There's a lot of grandmas calling me because the moms can't because they're at work. That child will have a greater outcome if I reduce that stress of that family each day. So this year at the walk, there's going to be 75 community exhibitors. And I go to bed at night thinking, did I uncover every stone out there? Can we help get someone to ABA who needs it? Do Can we help someone find equine therapy that they were looking for? So I just feel like I'm running so fast trying to get answers for families and, um, and, and because it can change a life. And I just know, I know personally what that means. When you walk into the park, TEP, there's so much help there. When we walked in there four or five years ago was our very first time there. There is all these these different community partners that are there to be helpful. And you look at their schools, there's different resource programs, so you don't feel alone. And there's all these people walking there that have the same quote-unquote issues that you have that understand that, well, Caleb only eats this and not that. And like you were saying, Bree, about having double the work when you get home from work, well, you have to cook maybe three meals that night. Yeah, yeah. And they don't eat the same ones you do. <laughs> they don't. And you're at the you're at the walk, and you realize that there's other people that also cook three different meals at night, mm-hmm. and that the shoes have to be tied in a certain way. Mm-hmm. It's this calm arena. It's peaceful. The stigmas are gone. Mm-hmm. You're not being judged. And you look around, and there's other kids having a tantrum over there that's totally okay and it doesn't bug you because you know what's going on mm-hmm. and on top of that you can search for help there's tons of different things that you can focus on when you're there that i think are very helpful for everybody i agree absolutely the walk is huge for all of southern arizona for all of the reasons you just stated if not more um for me personally the autism society of southern arizona has given me a platform as an autistic person to be able to share a first-person experience of autism in a way that I may not have been able to before. I think that having all of the allies, such as parents and teachers and doctors and researchers, um, being able to hear from someone who is autistic and having our voices in a first-person direct way being heard has been so incredibly empowering for me um, and has really given me kind of this this idea that you know maybe I actually can make a difference in the community. If I can be empowered enough to share my story and to be brave enough to do that, then maybe we can empower other autistic people to do so as well. Um, so that's really been the huge difference for me is, is just really allowing me to feel like, okay, not only can I use my voice, but people want to hear me. And that's huge. Our guests were Hattie, Bree, and Edgar, three people in our community who understand autism from the inside out. They'll be among thousands gathering at TEP Park on East Ajo Way next Saturday, April 28th, for the 12th Annual Autism Walk and Resource Fair. You can get much more information from the Autism Society of Southern Arizona. They're online at asaz.org. You can also hear more of this roundtable discussion on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. 
Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.